You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Welcome to another edition of the Historian Roundtable. I am joined again by all of the former Spy Museum historians, Dr. Alexis Albion, our first historian, who was here in the very beginning and left the job to work with the 9-11 Commission and the World Bank. She is now back here again, working on the development of the new Spy Museum. Dr. Thomas Bogart, our second historian, who is now a historian of the Department of the Army. And finally, Dr. Mark Stout, my immediate predecessor, who is now heading up the Master's Program in Global Security Studies at Johns Hopkins University here in D.C., where he also heads the program that awards certificates in national security studies and intelligence. Today we'll be answering questions from you, SpyCast listeners. These questions were sent in via Twitter and email, and there were so many great ones, but for the sake of time, I whittled them down to three. However, if you have a question you'd like answered on a later Historian Roundtable, you can email them to spycast at spymuseum.org or tweet them at us at intlspycast. So let's jump right in with the first question, and it's one that we get all the time. What is your favorite and perhaps more obscure spy pop culture, and we're talking mainly movies and TV, that has a modicum of realism? And why do you think it's more realistic than the others? Who wants to start? Well, I'll go first if you like. Uh, yeah. Um, so I am an enormous fan of a television show that aired in Britain in, from 1978 to 1980. You can get it on DVD now. I'm not aware that you can stream it anywhere. Called The Sandbaggers. Uh, Sandbaggers was broadcast on ITV. There were three seasons, about 20 episodes. And it was actually created by somebody who had some connection, apparently, with the intelligence world, a guy named Ian McIntosh. He'd been a Royal Navy officer. He'd apparently served in Intel, um, who mysteriously died in a plane crash off the coast of Alaska uh, during the shooting of the third season. Um, but it's, it's about MI6, or the Secret Intelligence Service in Britain. And the lead character is a guy named Neil Burnside. He's the director of operations. Um, and he's, he's divorced. Uh, he doesn't drink. He lives a very Spartan life. And he's, uh, he's uh, a head of the, a former head, rather, of the special operations unit called the Sandbaggers. Um, 
His sidekick is Sandbagger One, a guy named Willie Kane, played by Roy Lonnan. He's a former paratrooper who hates guns. Uh, he's sort of an amiable guy who's uh, Burnside's conscience. And then the other sort of key character is uh, Sir Jeffrey Wellingham. He's the permanent undersecretary, so the senior civil servant in the Foreign Office, and also Burnside's former uh, father-in-law. And they've got some degree of mutual affection, but they also try to manipulate each other, you know, seven ways from Sunday. And usually Wellingham wins because he's older and cagier. Um, Wellingham, by the way, is played by a guy named Alan McNaughton, who had guest roles in The Saint and The Avengers um, back in the day. And what I like about this is that the show is about real-life ethical kinds of issues that you face in the intelligence business. Burnside is a manipulative guy. He's ethically challenged. He lies to his superiors. He manipulates his subordinates. Just to give one example, in, in, in one episode, Sandbagger 2. So one of his valuable special operators wants to get married and leave the service. But Burnside thinks this guy's a really, really good officer, and it'll take at least eight months to replace him. So he tries to bully the man's fiancée into breaking off the engagement. And when that doesn't work, he tries to make it look like she's sleeping with some male friend so that Sandbagger 2 will break off the engagement. Um, so it's Grey's Anatomy with intelligence. There we go, yes. Opera. Burnside, the thing is, though, that Burnside isn't per se a villain. Like he's doing all of this in the name of, of MI6. There are really only two things that matter in his life is the, is the service and beating the KGB, right? Um, but it's probably the least romantic show in the history of spy television. There's no Bond gadgets that stretch the laws of physics. There's no sex. There's almost no drinking. There's no Bond girls. Um, Somebody once described this show as men in cheap suits dying badly in Prague. Um, but actually, you know, most of the action, uh, action, and I use that term loosely, is indoors in, you know, drab 1970s era British government offices um, with, you know, the worst furniture you can imagine. And, um, and I think the first, uh, the, a, a very short speech that Burnside gives at the end of the first episode really sums it up. Special operations doesn't mean going in with all guns blazing. It means special planning, special care, fully briefed agents in possession of all possible alternatives. If you want James Bond, go to your library. But if you want a successful operation, sit at your desk and think. And then think again. Our battles aren't fought at the end of a parachute. They're won and lost in drab, dreary corridors in Westminster. So Burnside's a monstrous megalomaniac, or sorry, monstrous monomaniac, but it's the show's about real stuff. You know, what should be the dividing line between foreign intel services and domestic ones? How much deference do you owe to a completely incompetent boss? Um, what should a manager do when he's torn between loyalty to the service and loyalty to his subordinates? And sort of ultimately at the end of the day, does the end justify the means? I think it's fabulous stuff. So you're, you're a former intelligence analyst, so I got to ask in, in all seriousness, Will anyone who's not you find this show interesting? Yeah, I, th I, <laughs> I think they will because ultimately it's about operations. Okay. Right? It's not a, in fact, uh, that if I had one critique of the show is that you know, there's, there's one sort of token analyst who's traipsed through for about two minutes of every fourth or fifth episode. Um, it's really um, about operations. Um, you know, what, do you, uh, what do you do when an operation um, goes wrong and threatens a diplomatic incident with the Soviet Union and you never quite told the foreign office you were going to mount this operation to begin with, right? Um, what do you do when you have somebody very senior in the British government um, whom you know is probably going to defect and you've got a chance to kill him before he gets over to the Soviet bloc, right? Uh, what do you owe to... Um, to, to an agent who's in trouble somewhere and probably going to die. Uh, do you owe him an effort to uh, rescue him, um, even though it's going to be very uh, difficult? Uh, should you lie to your boss if your boss is, is incompetent and is going to make the wrong decision? Um, all these sorts of things. Can I ask you one follow-up question? I'm yeah. not familiar with the Sandbaggers. It does sound very interesting. 
No, this came out in the 60s, early uh, 60s? Late, late 70s. Se- 70, oh, late 70s. 78 to 80. All right, yeah, because so right I was wondering, yeah. you know, of course, in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't all that information on the Secret Services, especially in Britain, um, probably even less so there than, than here in the United States. Oh, very much so. So yeah. I'm just curious, what is it based on? Who, who, who wrote this? Were these people who worked in intelligence? Yeah, so the... the um, or, or was it made up? But from what you tell me, it sounds like it, it actually does depict... The, the reality to an extent of MI5 and MI6. Yeah, I would I would put it in uh, sort of the same relationship to reality that uh, maybe the the work of John le Carré has. So you know all of the the office symbols, uh, you know, and 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 acronyms and whatnot may not be right, but the broad structure of what goes on and and the feel of it and the the, the challenges and the dilemmas um, and just the ethos and the atmosphere are about right. Uh, the writer was a guy named Ian McIntosh. He'd been in the Royal Navy, apparently done some work with Intel, but wasn't in MI6 himself. But we are left to infer, and I think it's pretty clear because he's clearly got a good understanding of the intelligence business, that he had worked with people in MI6 uh, at various times. So he wasn't he was in the center, but he was close enough to yes, exactly. He was. Okay. A, yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Yeah, I can um, I can follow up on that. My my taste is perhaps a little more conventional, which <laughs> I hope is okay. Um, but that does sound like a very interesting series, and uh, um, you know maybe perhaps be a little bit more for buffs. Um, but regardless, I mean I'm I'm up for anything that um, tries to sort of delve into the reality of the espionage. Um, I generally like just like Mark um, movies and TV shows that uh, are not necessarily written by practitioners, but that are well informed. Um, and it could be someone who maybe hasn't served in intelligence, but, but just like the makers of the Sandbaggers, uh, are close enough to, to understand and, of course, are good writers. Um, there, are some, there are some movies that I think do depict the reality of intelligence um, um, very closely. A uh, classic, of course, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was just remade. Uh, again, it doesn't depict a real case, but I think it depicts the reality of this whole, uh, the paranoia and the mole hunt in the 1960s and 1970s. It's basically Philby. I mean, it's not... Well, it's Philby. I just happened to have read a book about Golitsyn and Ozenko, these these, these Russian defectors that came to the United States in the 60s and 70s, and the CIA just couldn't make out were these people real or were they dangles. Is the information that they gave us real, or is there just disinformation given to to the United States... uh, uh, James Jesus Angleton, uh, former counterintelligence chief of the CIA, essentially stumbled over this. He just couldn't couldn't separate reality and fiction anymore. And I think Tinker, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy um, depicts this reality very well. Uh, there's a movie that came out very recently, Argo, which uh, uh, Tony Mendez of the Spy Museum was very much involved in this based on his own story of how he got some people out of Iran uh, after the um, Iranian hostage crisis. And it, it is a very realistic movie. Uh, it's a great story, and it tells you a lot about how the CIA operated um, at the time. And then there are some movies that are not necessarily spy movies or don't necessarily depict real cases, but they sort of tell you bigger truth. I mean, one of my all-time favorites is The Manchurian Candidate. Mm. The book the first movie and the second movie. Mm. It's very rare that I didn't know you there have was these. A second movie. Denzel, yes, yes, there was yeah. a remake with Denzel Washington, oh, and they right. all yeah. depict some realities, not necessarily only espionage of their time, but greater, greater truth. Uh, the McCarthy era. Uh, I don't really know another book, another piece of art that um, captures the atmosphere of those times very well. The invasion of the body snatchers might be. Close second, maybe, yes. (laughs) So this is where I'm coming from. One of the things that I uh, really like about Tinker Taylor, and I'm an enormous fan of the book and of the the movie and of the Alec Guinness TV series done back in, what, the 80s, I guess, is that 
unlike the Sandbaggers, unlike Argo, unlike my current my favorite current television show about spies, The Americans, um, it doesn't turn everything up to eleven, right? I mean, all those things, all those that I just mentioned, you've touched on them, have substantial basis in sort of real ideas and, and real operations, but are turned up unrealistically. Immense, great entertainment, but unrealistic in that regard. But Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you know, makes a makes a virtue out of like, you know, we're going to turn this down, right? Yep. We're going to dial exactly. this down. Everything's going to be just very on cerebral. an even keel, and it's like, you know, very calm above. It's like ducks, you know, like it look calm above and like lots of paddling below, and and you have to sort of imagine what's the turmoil going on in people's brains. I, th I think that makes it fabulous art, both written and, and on the screen. I will say, though, for the Americans, and just very briefly, um, I have the same concerns. All oh, this is just sort of a wild, hair-brained, um, you know, TV show. But actually, if you look at the individual cases, I think they're all based on real cases. Of course, it never happened, you know, so convoluted and, and all in, 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 you know, in one sitting. But the individual cases, I think, were based on... on Actual spy cases. Yeah, yeah very so much it's, so. It's it's not a bad series actually. Well, I, mean, I the, was positive. The equipment surprised. the equipment is is a period appropriate, and it's certainly something that would be used. I mean, Correct. there certainly were illegals. There are illegals. They wouldn't necessarily be knocking people off every week. Um, but what's great about Tinker Tailor Soldier? When you have six hours to do a miniseries, you can really take your time. Yes. And I think that's something that they did very well. The movie was a little more rushed, but they were able to kind of... Well, and that's a very good point. And in counterintelligence, well, frankly, most intelligence work, but counterintelligence uh, particularly, I would say, in the real world, cases unfold over, you know, months is fast, right? Right. Years is realistic, sometimes occasionally even decades. And so if it, with the TV series with Alec Guinness, that's a very good point. I never thought about that. It gives you some sense of this. So this is just one tiny little piece at a time and eventually we're going to big, build this big huge edifice but it takes a long time. Well it'd be near impossible if you've uh, if you've read uh, The Billion Dollar Spy about Adolf Tokachev um, there's great stories in there about how CIA officers had to get black how they had they lose KGB surveillance in order to meet with Tokachev which is the first penetration agent inside the Soviet Union and it took them eight hours to to be fully sure that there was no I mean how could you do that in a movie, right? It would be yeah. walking around and sitting on park benches and changing cabs and buses. It would be even a TV show. The Americans wouldn't have lasted more than two episodes before it was canceled. No one would have watched it. Uh, and that's where you get the advantage of having the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy miniseries where people are going to watch Alec Guinness in Britain one way or the other. And, and so he, he, they could take their time. But it's very rare that you're able to do that in any kind of American series or even a movie that's two hours long. Yeah, we well, prefer things like 24. That's right? so. why I was going to say that, and in a way, I f your question is the question is kind of a trick question because they're just nothing is realistic on TV or in the <laughs> movies. If it was, it, it wouldn't be entertainment at all because, just as you say, these things take a long time. Most of it is uh, quite painstaking. Um, paperwork, people aren't going out killing people, there's not a lot of sex, I mean, all those things. It, it, it doesn't actually lend itself to entertainment. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, sort of rare examples where there's an element of, <laughs> of something accurate in some of these series. And um, it was funny because I was, I was, you think about the Americans because it is sort of known for being um, praised for being a 
a realistic TV series. And of course, it's it's realistic because it deals with, yes, some real plot lines, the realism that there were and are illegals or sleeper spies. Um, but, you know, beyond that, there's not a lot that's really realistic about what they do. Um, and I was thinking about this difference between British and American shows, um, and um, it, it does tend that the British seems to be a little bit better at, at getting at that realism, and it's not just the shows, it's the writers, it's the Le Carre model, and so on, which maybe deals with some or more of these cerebral intellectual themes that seem to lend themselves, um, seem to make us feel like it is more realistic, right? That this is really, that intelligence is not so much an action and shoot 'em up kind of discipline, but it's it's one that lends itself to really thinking. Um, and um, the the show I was thinking about, I don't know if it's my favorites, but I happened to watch it quite recently, and uh, which is a British show about sleepers, sort of let's say the British equivalent of the of the Americans, uh, called The Game, which was also a six part BBC series um, on a couple of years ago which I, I just happened to watch on a recommendation. And um, it's, uh, uh, it's set in the 1970s, not in the 80s. And I think there's something really interesting as well about these shows that they're, they're making today, which are set during the Cold War. And it does make us think, you uh, know... All the good old days. Yeah, all the good old days. And also... Um, <clears throat> Um, one of the things I like about that the game is, is again, the depiction of tradecraft, which in the Americans as well has, has some nice, you know, tradecraft in it. And there's something about the Cold War, that, the, that Cold War period, with that kind of tradecraft, um, which, you know, uh, the dead drops, right? Um, I was, in, in the game, there's something as simple as uh, steaming open an envelope, with a, a boiling tea kettle, you know, um, which is not even Cold War tradecraft, right? It goes no. back way, way earlier than that. That that maybe you know modern day tra- tradecraft. Uh, I guess the computerization of things. You know, it, it's just it doesn't seem as fun, does it, to to show that? So the the the, the game is again is about um, a sleeper um, agent, Soviet sleepers in in Great Britain. It's a it's set in the seventies. It's got that kind of gritty dinginess to it it rains a lot <laughs> um which somehow makes us feel like it's it's more real um and it's about a sort of small team at mi5 again um that is looking into this uh soviet plot it's called operation glass which they're basically told is going to be a game changer in the cold war um one of the things i like about it is it, it you get a sense of these these um bureaucratic rivalries between MI5 and MI6, you know, whose territory is this? This is a time in the 1970s um, where Britain was going through um, some economic hardships. There are power cuts. (laughs) There are um, uh, cuts being made in budgets and things like that. Um, And you really get a sense that they're operating uh, as well as they can, given the limitations. Um, the, The head of MI6, who forms this little team to look into Operation Class, is just known as Daddy. Um, that's his. That's his name. It's like C or M, and they all call him Daddy. And nobody ever explains where that comes from, but it just seems very appropriate somehow. It's got some great characters. It's a. It, it's got a lot of intrigue. Again, it's got those six episodes where you can really um, sort of 
drag not say drag out or you can you can tell a complicated stretch out that's better you can tell a complicated story over time without having to fill it in and, and in, into these you know two hours and um, there's 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 violence there's killing somebody gets killed in every single episode but it doesn't seem it's it's uh, actually there there's this aversion to to killing and that's one of the things I really like about it you know it's it's sort of this isn't what we do. Um, so I really recommend it if you can find it um, online or on DVD, the game. Um, it's, um, it's a really uh, intriguing and entertaining drama that, that does sort of convey some of the, 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 the work, the busy work that gets done. One of the things I like is whenever they show these scenes of MI5, you see a lot of these little cubicles where people are just kind of working away at their desks. MI5 looks like a distinctly unglamorous place. Well, Vince, do you have a candidate? So mine will be a lot easier to find because if you grew up in the 80s like me, this was on USA or TBS every other day. Um, and it's very similar in vain to The Hunt for Red October, which comes later. And this is a movie called Firefox. And people can chuckle. It's a Clint Eastwood movie. Um, and because my, my background is S&T, and so this is really one of the key technical collection spy movies of the 1980s. And if you know the basic plot... Clint Eastwood is a Vietnam vet whose mother was Russian, so he speaks Russian fluently without an accent. And he is brought back in. He's retired or he's gone because he's got severe PTSD. And he's brought back in by CIA and MI6 to do a mission inside the Soviet Union to steal their state-of-the-art new prototype fighter aircraft called the Firefox, which flies at Mach 5 or 6. It's stealth. It has thought-controlled weapon systems, although you have to think in Russian to fire them off, which is a nice little plot point. But the reason I like it is because it really... It, the movie is not realistic at all. Um, there are some nice back-and-forth with the KGB chasing the dissidents inside Moscow near the beginning of the movie. The reason I like it is it really... What rings true about it is this whole idea of technical collection. This is something during the 60s, 70s, and 80s that the United States was very good at, uh, whether you're talking about Glomar Explorer or the just keep it very topical, the idea of acquiring information about Soviet aircraft through stealing them or defectors uh, or, or getting their hands on them. The, the real story starts back in the 60s with the MiG-17. The only thing we really knew about it was because an East German defector flew into West Germany and said, I'd like to defect, and that's how we were able to learn about the MiG-17. The 70s, the very famous case of Viktor Belenko, who flew his MiG-25 to Japan, uh, this is one of the fun stories. We took it apart piece by piece and returned the pieces to the Soviets with a smile on our face saying, here's your plane back. Don't say we stole it from you. And then you can see this with also the, the Mossad, uh, the Israelis, Operation Diamond, where they offered uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to any Iraqi pilots to defect. And that's how we found about the MiG-21, uh, where Middle Eastern pilots were, were coming to uh, the Israelis uh, and they eventually would pass along to the United States. So it's kind of this, it has this undercurrent of truth, the idea that we, we, had the, we didn't have the ability, and, and most scientific and technological intelligence is very difficult, especially the scientific side. It's not hard to figure out how good is a, the new Russian tank against a, a Sabo round, a depleted uranium round, because the Army is very good at figuring this stuff out. It's, it's much more difficult getting inside laboratories. It's much more difficult getting at the prototype level because unless you can get inside the actual labs and talk to the scientists then you don't really know how things work 
So in this case, we decided to get our hands on the finished product, either by having a defector or, in the case of Firefox, by stealing the aircraft. But there are some real interesting concepts when you talk about uh, dissidents within the Soviet Union. They're helped along by dissidents who are Jewish and don't like the way the Soviets treated the Jewish population. They're helped by scientists who are working within uh, the advanced research inside the Soviet Union and are unable to pass information along to the, so- uh, to the Americans, but are there and willing to help Clint Eastwood once he shows up to help steal the Firefox. And there's some fun action scenes in the movie, too. He basically takes this play into levels that you've never seen before. One of my funniest little, oh, you really kind of screwed that up moments in the movie was that he and the other prototype are now dogfighting at the end in the big climax in the movie. And the other pilot decides to shoot cannon or machine gun. It's probably cannon, 20 millimeter, at Clint Eastwood's plane as they're flying at full velocity, which is not possible. Um, the, 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 you know, an M16 fires a, a bullet at 3,100 feet per second, which is much, 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 much slower than these aircraft are flying at. So even as like a six-year-old when I was That's watching spitting this, into the wind is what yeah, it is. is even, yeah, mean? basically you're shooting yourself with that or shooting someone behind you. So even as a six-year-old, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. But now it really doesn't. But I'm able to forgive it because I think the movie is fun. It's one of these rare Saturday afternoon movies that you can watch and go, you know what, they got some of that right. Or at least they got the idea, the, 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 the overall feeling of the movie has, has the basic concept down. Yeah, it's a very fun movie, and, and, and your nomination of it reminds me of a conversation I had just the other day with a colleague who's just back from a business trip in Dayton, Ohio. And I don't know if you've been there. I have not, but the Air Force has a wonderful museum. Right, Pat, right, Pat. Yes, right, Pat. Um, and uh, that is the museum for what, in during much of the Cold War, was Air Force Intelligence's uh, Foreign Technology Division. I think it has another name now. And so not only is it great on American air- aircraft, military aircraft, but also on German and Japanese and East Bloc aircraft from during the Cold War because that was the primary place that stolen things like the fictional Firefox would end up and get taken apart and analyzed and stuck into the, you know, into the, and, 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 and tested and kept there then. And now you can see many of them. I'd like to think uh, that there are some classified ones there you can't see, but you can see the old ones at least. I think it might be worth mentioning just a few other movies I'm just thinking of, which are, are really, really great. Um, and um, The Lives of Others, of course, is a, a wonderful film about um, about the Stasi during the Cold War and gives a really incredible um, look at how all-pervasive Stasi surveillance was, that uh, really digging into uh, ordinary people's lives. Um, it, it, it's really a... Uh, a very a great film, a very moving film, and, and I think uh, has a, a lot to say for sort of reflecting some of the, the tension of the times and that feeling of being watched. And then I was thinking something much more contemporary, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which I, I know has um, been criticized for <laughs> aspects of it that are not realistic, the idea that this one analyst is responsible for finding bin Laden, which is, is not the reality. It was certainly a, a team effort, um, but I think it has a lot to say for it in terms of um, showing how analysis really was critical in, in hunting down bin Laden, and um, uh, I, I know when I saw it, um, I f- just felt that tension from the very beginning of the movie up until the end of the movie, and then that kind of sense of uh, relief and release um, at the end when he was finally gotten. And um, 
uh, it, it did make me feel what it might have been like in some way for these analysts who for 10 years uh, devoted their lives to trying to find this individual um, and what it might have felt like at the end when they actually succeeded. So I think those are two films that I can think of which, uh, which do a, a, a pretty good job as far as is possible of depicting some of the reality of intelligence work. Maybe just very briefly, and that could lead to the next question. Um, all of these movies, of course, depict aspects of intelligence, and they raise some bigger questions. And when you only look at these movies, often you come away with a feeling how powerful intelligence is. If you think of Firefox, you know, you just have to steal that plane. And I'm sure it happened. I mean, or things that happened similarly. The next question is, of course, once you have that plane, what do you do with it? Um, and there is some you know, fairly recent research that, that suggested, um, you know, when that happened on the Soviet side, they actually had a very hard time, um, you know, using that intelligence to then implement that in their own industrial process. And they might have been stealing that plane, but they couldn't really very, they could do very little with it. Same story with the East Germans. They they, they managed to, to steal these microchips, but they couldn't actually use them for their own computers. Um, and, and the list goes on. So I think these movies are, are really fun to, to look at, and they, they depict realistic aspects of intelligence, but then that leads to the next question, well, what can intelligence actually do, and what are the in dangers in intelligence analysis? And maybe you want to lead up to that with your um, the next question we got from the audience. Yeah, the next question really mm -hmm. kind of delves into that in a very specific way. Um, the question is, it's no coincidence that the analysis offered on this show by people who trained for and worked in intelligence field is of high quality, thank you. But there are always outside forces that they have to contend with, e.g. pressure from politicians to deliver intelligence with backs up rather than challenges their own viewpoints. Where the available intelligence runs counter to the political desires of the day, it may be ignored altogether. So I wonder, is there an effective way to counteract these pressures, or is the reality that intelligence will always be subject to a sort of politicized cherry-picking? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and there certainly is a, a lot of truth to the fact that policymakers, whether they're military leaders or, you know, the president or whoever, often don't like the news that intelligence uh, analysts give them. Um, there's, a, there's an old joke that um, policymakers use intelligence the way a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination, i.e. that, you know, from when it comes to relations with the policymakers, the policymakers aren't always necessarily um, intellectually honest, if you will. Um, that said... Um, at least in the U.S. system, um, it's actually very, very difficult to have, you know, to, uh, to conduct retaliation against an analyst who delivers bad news. Um, analysts operate through a different chain, and they have, tend to have civil service protections. Um, I mean, there are some very, there's some very rare individual cases you can come up with, but the, but the fact of the matter is that um, delivering bad news feels to an intelligence analyst much more dangerous than actually it is. But you can retaliate against the agency itself. I mean, the, you know, it, it, the, the, the torture report is a great example of this, where it came from one side of the aisle, it was entirely democratic, and it took the CIA to the woodshed. And you can now see, I guess a couple of days ago, a court decided that these two psychologists who developed the enhanced interrogation program can be taken to court. Now, whether that happens or not, or yeah, whatever. No, no, it's a good I mean, point, and, and that's that's a very good point. Um, and 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 that is that um, analysts and people conducting operations in this case, you know, a certain form of collection, right, through interrogation, and uh, and and I believe at least some of it was torture. Um, 
that's a different deal from the question of delivering bad news, you know, from analysis, right? You know, uh, President Johnson, we're very sorry, the Vietnam War is not actually going very well, right? Um, that may that may get the agency you work for in trouble sort of collectively. You're absolutely right. I and mean, Richard Nixon, for instance, um, uh, basically didn't have the time of day for CIA um, or uh, the uh, CIA and also to a lesser extent stay at INR's uh, views of uh, Soviet intentions during the uh, 1970s um, got them on the wrong end of a lot of um, you know ridicule and abuse from Congress. But that's a different question from reaching down in and having GS-13 Mark Stout, you know, fired because, you know, he didn't, um, he didn't suck up to the, to the president or the secretary of state. The cases of that are extraordinarily rare. But, and, your, and your chain will almost always back you up. But there's a much more subtle way that politicization can happen, and that's in the question being asked by yes, policymakers in the first true. place. I mean, take Iraqi WMD. If the White House asks, are there weapons of mass destruction, it's a very different question than where are the weapons of mass destruction. Now, it sounds nuanced, but that is a tasking saying they are there, go find them, versus the very open-ended question saying, do they exist? You know, and, and that's when I teach this, when I teach the intelligence cycle, I leave targeting slash tasking out till the end. So I t- it's very controversial because... People go, oh, well, they can't have me fired. But when the president of the United States is asking you a question that has that kind of weight to it, I don't care if you're not worried about your job. That's going to affect the way that you react. No, that, that, that is absolutely correct. And uh, one of the tasks of you know, good intelligence analysts and good intelligence agencies is to um, make sure that um, – I don't know quite how to put this – but that not only do you ask the question that was that was or answer the question that was asked, but also that you answer the question that should have been asked. You know, we don't know where they are, and in fact, by the way, we're not sure they're anywhere uh, in that in that particular case. But that is that is a very a very difficult thing to do. There's no question about it. Um, well, I do think first of all, intelligence agencies they don't operate in a vacuum. Uh, they're part of the government, and when the government has an agenda. I do think there is a tendency, uh, it's a very human tendency throughout the government, including the intelligence agencies, to work toward that agenda. If you're being told as an analyst, um, you know, we're looking for this piece of information and, well, I haven't found it, well, please look again, please look again, please look again, especially with something that is so vague as weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction, what could that mean? Well, we're all thinking nuclear, but technically it means biological, chemical. I mean, I can, I can produce that in my garage. And do you want to be the analyst who says, well, in all of Iraq, there is not a single chemical weapon? No, certainly you don't. No. Certainly you don't. Retaliation, you're absolutely right. Of course, firing fact, someone. Some stray, stray chemical rounds found in Iraq. Sure, <laughs> sure. Everybody has them. You yeah. know, I got some at home. You know, we all do. Don't want to hear um, about that. Um, but of course, we're thinking nuclear, and there's there's already this conflation between the issues. So, but just by posing that question, uh, you're already putting a spin on things. Um, uh, so that is one thing. Um, then, of course, the lack of oversight. Government outside the intelligence community, there's, there's a certain degree of oversight. There's the press, there, there are oversight committees, there's all of us. We can, we can look at what the IRA does. And if we, if we don't like it, then, uh, you know, there'll be blowback. Now, with the intelligence community, it has to operate in secrecy up to a point. Otherwise, it can't do its work. But it also means that these things happen in a place that most Americans don't see. So spinning and agendas, you know, become more pronounced. And I think when you have a government with an agenda, be it here in the United States or someone, somewhere else, 
it gets very, very difficult to have a professional process. As I said, you know, retaliation can have many forms. Maybe you don't get fired, but you don't get the promotion. Um, maybe you don't get fired, but you don't get to serve in that cool country where everybody wants to serve. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Um, yeah, that can chief have a station of Uganda or something like exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing against you guys. But. And uh, you know, that's just the United States. I mean, if you look at the world in general, I think, sort of as a as a general rule of thumb, the more authoritarian a regime is, the more difficult it will be for an intelligence service to be professional and uh, you know tell truth to power because that cut could ultimately be lethal. There are many examples um, of that. Um, unfortunately, here we have a democracy. Um, but certainly, when there's an agenda, I think, for an intelligence service, it's very, very difficult. So the guidance has to come from top. And I think now we're much more aware of that than we were 20 years ago. What secrecy allows people to do, also politicians especially, is to claim they didn't know about something. <laughs> um, I mean, a good example of this is the... NSA programs of the last decade, whether it's Stellar Wind or PRISM or all these, where there's clear indication that members of Congress on both sides of the aisle were briefed several times on this, whether they listened or not, we'll never know, but they were able to come out and say, I had no idea about this because it wasn't made public and it was something they were able to, to say, I am completely uh, incensed about this, I'm, I'm, I can't believe this is happening, I'm blown away. Uh, in some cases, the intelligence community goes, yeah, but you were at all these briefings that you were, you know, we told you about this, but uh, people are allowed to say, at least get away with it because the public doesn't know any better. Uh, I didn't know about this either. This isn't my fault. Blame the NSA. They're the rogue agency. And of course, when that comes up, when the rogue agency concept comes up, uh, those of us in the know just cringe because there's no such thing. Um, you know, even even going back to the 70s, what the Church and Pike Committee decided was that there's no such thing as a rogue agency. And they went in with the expectation that's what they were going to find. Right. And then to their credit, they came out saying, we don't approve a lot of stuff that went on, but it wasn't because the CIA or et cetera was a rogue agency. Well, and that's similarly true for the last, you know, for it's with Snowden revelations, whether it's enhanced interrogation, whether it's rendition, all the things that the, everyone at CIA directors and NSA directors got, you know, dragged over the coals by Congress turned out to be directed from the very top. And uh, but in many cases, uh, and this is not a case of Republicans versus Democrats, in many cases, they were essentially uh, left to dangle in the wind by the politicians in the White House and in Congress because it was easier to use the political argument against them than it was to kind of suck it up and say, yeah, we knew about this. We said it was OK. We directed it from the White House. Uh, much easier to say the American public, oh, this wasn't us. This was the CIA going rogue. I think what all these comments are saying is that it, it's it's a much more it's a much more complicated picture than simply, you know, uh, pressure being put on one analyst. I mean, th th this is something where you have to look all along the line. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've talked about Iraq because it is the obvious example here, at least in recent years. You say politicization of intelligence, and people think Iraq. And um, and that's one where you have to look at a certain amount of complicity all along, all along the chain. I mean, there, that it's not just because, you know, there was pressure, there was political pressure put on one analyst or one group of analysts, and they were trying to get the answer. There, there's, there, there are, there, we have to look at all along like the, 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 the analysts, the managers, the policymakers, Congress, um, the press. <laughs> um, there's many different factors involved. I mean, you know, 
the politics and policy are always going to be entwined and separating them entirely is probably is is unrealistic um but um you know i do think in recent years there's been a lot more attention paid toward um trying to separate politics and policy trying to look at the intelligence community and trying to separate um uh, trying to 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 protect analysts, for example, trying to allow them greater um, ability to to express opinions, even if they are ones that the policymakers don't want to hear, and so on. And I think we're probably in a period where we're going to pay a lot of attention to that. And if you look at the ebb and flow of things, probably at some point, you know, um, the pendulum will swing in one direction again, and we'll deal with this again, and then we'll correct it. Um, just because it's in the air and I happen to know something about it, I was thinking about these 28 pages of the <laughs> joint congressional inquiry um, into the 9-11 attacks, the which has become... 28 pages that are supposedly about Saudi Arabia, Correct. possibly Saudi Arabia's yes. connection with the 9-11 I, I, I don't Avengers. think it's supposedly about... I mean, they are about Saudi Arabia. What they're about is another thing. Um, and again, this is, this is... I mean, if you want to call that an intelligence product, it's been utterly politicized right now. I mean, it's being used for political purposes. Um, you mentioned how... Uh, if you make something secret and all the, the sort of consequences that are to that, sometimes you make something secret and people assume right. that it must be important, <laughs> right? That it must <laughs> be influenced. Some people assume that it must be, it must say something bad about the government or whatever. That's why we need to cover it up. You know, you know, why won't you release this information? Aha, you must be covering yourself or you must have something, you know, you, it, it must uh, play into some other agenda. I mean, you know, there are a lot of reasons why things are kept secret. Um, but but uh, it was certainly right now, um, and for good reasons, the American public does seem to assume the worst, um, which isn't always the case. And that's a problem. And it's, it's I heard um, uh, a number of our leaders talk about that there's, there's too much secrecy. And th there is this very fine balance that you have to have between enough secrecy in order to for intelligence community to actually work effectively. But if you have too much, then you actually lose the support of, of, of the people. Yeah, I think, I think pretty much um, anybody who's ever had a security clearance has very quickly learned that um, the vast majority of all classified information is monumentally uninteresting Absolutely. to pretty much everybody in the entire world. Uh, it happens to be classified for any number of a gazillion reasons, but it's almost never because it's intrinsically sexy information. Yeah, and there is this problem, and anybody who's ever had a, had a, a security clearance understands it exactly, which is the default is classify it. Classify it unless there's a reason not to when um, most other areas of life, it's this should be open unless there's a reason for it not to be. Right. Well, I mean, you talked about the separation of politics and policy, and maybe that's not a good thing. I mean, political sustainability is a key component now for intelligence operations because budgets matter. And if you're going to run a program like I'm thinking of some of the NSA programs, which are incredibly expensive, the way of politics, the the, the overall feelings of the American public matter in what you can get away with. And I don't mean that in a, can we get one over on people? I mean, the fact is, how far can you go? And since there's been 15 years now, since a major attack on the United States, the public is far less willing to accept intrusions on privacy. And on 9-12-2001, it's the exact opposite. And so intelligence agencies understanding how politics affects their job uh, is incredibly important. 
I mean, the, the, the ability to sustain things on a budgetary situation, on a political situation, you know, the idea is, are we going to get pulled in front of a, a of HIPC or SSCI, or are we going to get raked over the coals in the press? Are things in a democracy, in a country such as ours, where the intelligence agencies are tools of the executive, these are things that have to be considered. And I think, like you said, it's completely unrealistic to expect that we can eliminate politics completely, not in a country like even... Even in totalitarian states, there are still elements of politics that overhang intelligence agencies. I mean, Lerventi Beria arguably was the most powerful head of the Soviet intelligence service and politics everywhere. I mean, he ends up being the last person killed in the, really the Stalinist terror, which is so wonderfully ironic, was because of all these politics, all the people that he had pissed off and trying to get these, you know, the terror that he ran. I do think that, um, and I, I agree with that. I, I think that, uh, you know, we've said, and, and I frequently say, you know, sort of bad things implicitly about policymakers. Uh, but I got to say that intelligence officers, particularly intelligence analysts, are a fundamentally different beast from policymakers. Um, intelligence analysts, I, I like to say to my class, intelligence analysts are like Hamlet. They're sort of, well, on the other, one hand, on the other hand, I don't know, you know, wring your hands, kind of inclined towards pessimism. And policymakers are like George S. Patton. I hear you. Here's what we're going to do, right? We pay policymakers to do hard stuff. And so um, when a policymaker says to an intelligence analyst, I hear you when you say that, you know, everything's going down the tubes, I think you're wrong. In some sense, um, that's good. Um, because, you know, if it was easy, we wouldn't need to, you know, it, it, would, it would take care of itself, right? Um, we pay presidents and generals and admirals and diplomats to go out and solve really hard problems for us. And if they were, you know, if they, if they had the pessimistic worldview and, the, and you know, the, 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 the shades of gray nuance and not sure I fully understand yet kind of approach that intelligence analysts do, they'd never get anything done. So there's always going to be a certain degree of uh, culture clash, if you will, uh, of, the, of the one against the other. And, and, and the trick is just to ensure that that, that, um, you know, that, 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 that relationship isn't um, abused, I think. Well, precisely. I mean, this is exactly the point. Of course, ideally, they would be separated and the intelligence analysts do their, their thing and the policymakers uh, do the other. The problem is that the policymakers are, of course, above uh, the analysts. As they, they should they be, yes. Well, they should be, of course. <laughs> um, they don't operate in, in separate worlds. But that, of course, is also a power relationship. And I think in the past there were cases where analysis was not liked and there was retribution in one way or another, subtle or less subtle, and, and that is the problem. And, uh, you know, you mentioned barrier, of course, it goes completely out of control in totalitarian system where, where, where control is total and where you have to be very careful what you say, but it happens in more subtle ways in democracies too. And uh, so, yes, ideally they should be separated, I completely agree with you, but in reality they're not. Uh, and that's something that you got to keep in mind when you look at these things. But I do think we've come a long way, yeah. and we've we've. This is this is an instant. You know, I'm a historian, and uh, uh, you always like to think, well, maybe you can learn from the past, and often you can't. But I think in this particular incident, actually, the progress was made, and I think the intelligence community is in much better shape today, uh, and integrated into government decision-making process than it was um, even 15 years ago or so. Let's tackle our third question, and it is this: Has there ever been an organization or country more impenetrable than ISIS? How do we acquire significant human sources against a group that is so fanatical and the punishment is so severe? Meaning things like public beheadings being burned alive. Historically, to the group, is there 
or has there been an organization in our country that's more difficult to penetrate than currently ISIS? And, and so the reason I think this question is interesting, and I jumped all over it, is if you watch the Democratic primary debates when Martin O'Malley was still in the primary debates. I remember him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, d- d- uh, Mayor Carcetti from The Wire, if you remember him from the Democratic debates, he was the one that talked intelligence every once in a while. And he said, we need more human. We need more human to combat ISIS. And people are like, oh, well, he's talking about intelligence. But it didn't really seem like he had the concept down the way it was necessary to have the concept down, particularly considering it'd be very, very difficult to send human intelligence assets into ISIS for the obvious reasons, um, like we just talked about here. The life expectancy is very short, and your ending of life is very brutal. So with that in mind, can we come up with anything, at least historically, that even resembles that level of difficulty? Well, crickets. I love it. No, I've got a candidate, but I... I well, sure. I mean, let's, let's talk about ISIS. Um, and I profess I'm not an expert in ISIS, but one of the things that struck me when you look at these drastic countermeasures that, that organizations like ISIS take, and you find that in other um, organizations and, and uh, systems too, the early Stalinist period, certainly Nazi Germany, um, medieval Europe, it could also be portrayed as a sign of weakness. Why, why do they have to take these strong measures? Well, there's great concern that there is betrayal. A lot of it is imagined, a lot of it is uh, psychotic, but there's probably a kernel of truth. Now, I don't know and I shouldn't know what the CIA is doing to penetrate ISIS, but for all I know, maybe maybe they're being very successful in this paranoia that they have about penetrations is not so far-fetched. I don't know. But then let's get away from human for a moment. Uh, human penetration might be difficult, um, but certainly an organization like ISIS like any large organization needs an infrastructure. If you need an infrastructure, you need communications. Now, if you have communications, uh, signals intelligence comes into play. And I, I, I would submit that the United States is vastly superior to an organization like ISIS in this regard. You'd hope uh, so, right? I, I would, I would <laughs> hope so. Um, and again, I don't think I'm, I'm, you know, betraying any secret information. I think so. I'm pretty sure they are. Um, there was a case when Osama bin Laden was still alive. Uh, a story in the newspaper that that they were trying to track him you know, by him using his cell phone, and then when the story was in the newspaper, he stopped using it. But it all goes to show these people rely on communications. I think the NSA is probably the best signals intelligence agency in the world, and I would think they're using this and other means to penetrate ISIS. So I'm, I'm actually not that concerned about ISIS um, as such. I think they stand and fall with their acceptance um, in the Middle East, and that seems to be on the decline. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alexa. I was just going to say, I'm always skeptical, I guess, as an historian, I'm always skeptical of thinking that there's anything new. There's anything that is completely and utterly new, like we've never seen this before. Um, so um, I think, as you're right, the, the brutality of ISIS, I, I, I don't, this isn't new. <laughs> um, I mean, you don't have to look back that far. I mean, I mean, the brutality in the Soviet Union or in the um, East Eastern... Uh, Eastern Bloc in general, in East Germany, going back to World War II, uh, uh, brutality of uh, of the Gestapo and Hitler's regime, and going back into, I mean, you know, the, I, I think, I think uh, brutality is nothing new. Um, I think they, uh, I think the ability to um, take videos of people being um, beheaded and put them on YouTube for everybody to see is something new. Um, so, uh, the 
the publicity, the PR aspect of this, um, and using some some of these new communication methods of the modern world um, means that uh, we're, uh, more people are seeing these things and have greater access to it. Um, there are probably new aspects of that, but I think probably the essential nature of this is, is, is not that new. Um, and um, I mean, just even going back to the Cold War, um, it's not as if the CIA had did a very good job at penetrating the Soviet Union <laughs> in any way whatsoever. Not true, vice versa. The CIA did a great job at penetrating the United States. Um, but any, uh, I believe they did. <laughs> the KGB did a good job at penetrating the United States. Did, did I say, I'm you sorry. You said the you? CIA did a good job at penetrating oh. the United States. Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Shouldn't be talking about that. that. Just up to cut that, that part out. That bit anyway, again? Yeah, <laughs> cut that, that out. Freudian slip. <laughs> I guess I know more than I thought I knew. Um, <laughs> leave it in. Yeah, leave it in. <laughs> anyway, it's not as if the uh, the CIA did a, a great job at penetrating the Soviet Union during during the Cold War. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, we. With the, the idea that, that ISIS is impenetrable, I'm with uh, Thomas here in thinking that we probably have a lot of ways of penetrating and maybe not through humans, certainly through technical means. Um, I, I have, I'm pretty confident that um, if we haven't already found ways to penetrate, that we're working on it and we'll probably uh, get there at some point. I, I'm a little less confident. I mean, I, I look at when I saw this question, Cuba jumped into my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you that don't know how successful Cuban intelligence has been against the United States. And again, that's the key against the United States because they are pound for pound, arguably the most successful intelligence agency in the world. And there's a little bit of a caveat to that statement in that they have one single foreign intelligence target, and that's the United States. If the CIA only had one target, no one would touch us. Uh, But in the case, the Cubans are only really focused on the U.S., but there's a great, great if you're the Cubans, not so great if you're us. We thought we had penetrated the Cubans many times, but it turns out that between 1962 and 1987, a 25-year period, not a single CIA or American intelligence source in Cuba worked for us. Every single one of them was doubled back against the United States. That's extraordinary. Uh, And the only reason we actually found out about this was not because we figured out our own stuff was rotten. There was a defector codenamed Touchdown that came to the United States and said, Everything you thought you knew, everybody you thought you had working for you in Cuba was working for the Castros. Uh, and to me, brutality wasn't the key here, right? They're not, they weren't torturing their assets. They weren't torturing our assets. As much as the Cuban regime is not particularly nice to people, and there are political prisoners, and it is a totalitarian state, these people were working because they were patriotic, because they truly believed in the future of Cuba, uh, they, they were true believers. Uh, and the fact that something 90 miles away that was, you know, these are people who are in a banana republic, they don't have the technical means to do this against us. Without the Soviets, they're nothing. The underestimation of Cuban intelligence was at our downfall because they ate our lunch for 25 straight years. And if we weren't lucky enough to get this defector, they might still be making us think that we had people in there giving us real information when, in fact, it was garbage the entire time. And, in fact, we also know that the East Germans did something very no, similar exactly. to us as well. Now, I agree with every single word that's, that's just been said. I think these, these are all great points. Um, but I want to go off just briefly in a slightly different direction um, and, um, and, and suggest that, yeah, there have been uh, targets that are much more difficult to penetrate, even aside from the Cubans uh, and, and, 
and and uh, and the East Germans. You know, and I think, for instance, uh, and, and they would fit too. But for instance, you know, the, the say Soviet military intelligence during the Cold War, the GRU, or current day North Korean military intelligence. Right. Th these are organizations that are extremely security conscious. Um, put you through all sorts of checks and you know and background investigations and blah 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 blah. And furthermore, by the nature of their work. American intelligence doesn't have a lot of opportunities to meet these people. You can't recruit somebody until you've met them, right? right? Um, extraordinarily difficult to get inside these organizations. Extremely difficult. Uh, and even then, you face the problem that we had with the Cubans and the East Germans of you know, maybe doubling them. Um, by contrast, I think that penetrating ISIS is actually probably not that difficult. Now, what may be difficult, and for the reason that, um, basically, they're trying to be a mass movement. Right now, they do they do put people through background checks, but their ability to do that is extraordinarily limited, right? Um, and broadly speaking, because they're trying to be a mass movement, um, somebody who you know sticks up their hand and says, "I'm a convert to Islam," and by the way, I come with an American passport, and you know, I'm I am all behind this ISIS thing. They're kind of inclined to take you, right? I mean, if they reject you, then like they they're they're not speaking for Islam, right? I mean, as they claim to be. Um, so you can almost opt in yourself. You can't just opt into the GRU. I can't. I couldn't have stood up in the Cold War and said, you know, I'm feeling like a Soviet. I'm feeling like a commie. You should let me into the GRU. It just doesn't work that way. Whereas, I have a public profile. I'm known to have formerly worked for the U.S. intelligence. So I couldn't do this, but maybe our our friend over here, who's uh, our recording tech, could do that um, with just a very little bit of backup. The difficulty comes in finding people willing to do right. it. Where that's where the brutality comes in. Right. Most people don't want to be, you know, burned to death or beheaded. Um, but I think the actual doing it part um, is not so hard. And I think also, if you just to, to finish out, you know, ISIS is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, but if you look even at Al Qaeda and some of its other affiliates that have been around a little bit longer, it, just in the public domain, we know of you know at least a reasonable handful of people who, in various ways, shapes, and forms, have penetrated those organizations. Uh, Omar al-Nashiri, we had a defector, Jamal al-Fadl from Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda Collins, Morton Storm, I'm forgetting, there's a couple more that, that we know of in the public. Um, so I'm not nearly so pessimistic about the possibilities of penetrating Al-Qaeda in a human sense, you know, let alone getting to the, 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 the technical intelligence collection things that, that I think Tom has quite rightly brought up. I would like to imagine, and I suspect it's probably true, that in SIGINT terms we're eating their lunch. But, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'd be, I'm, I'm more optimistic on this question. Well, thank you, Alexis, Mark, and Thomas. Uh, we will probably try to do this again in a couple months. Uh, so if you have questions you'd like to hear the panel answer, you can email them to us at spycast at spymuseum.org or tweet them to us at INTL Spycast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spycast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. That's INTL SpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. 
That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.